listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. A colleague of mine, somebody I very much respect, once said to me, that every decent preacher eventually shows him or herself to be either a justification preacher or a sanctification preacher, either someone who steadily proclaims that by grace we have been declared just, in spite of the oftentimes unjustifiable nature of our lives, or someone who steadily speaks of the call to holiness and the transformed life. I think there is something to his observation, and I'm pretty sure that if he were here tonight or any other Sunday night, he'd smile and he'd tell me, Jamie, you have rather clearly cast your lot with the justification and grace, folks, when you preach. At the same time, I'm not sure that Jesus really lets us get away so easily with such neat distinctions. I mean, think about it for a minute. On the one hand, there's all these places where Jesus extends an astonishing sort of grace to people. The woman caught in the adulterous affair, for instance, Just go, go and sin no more. Or places where he tells parables like that of the Pharisee and the tax collector in which hard work and righteous religious practice take the back seat to the soul-searching cry for mercy. But then you come to the sort of territory we've been mining for the last few weeks, the parables of the wise and foolish bridesmaids the talents, and now the sheep and the goats. And suddenly how people act and what they do seems to take the priority position. And the not doing looks to have some rather extremely dire consequences. The foolish bridesmaids find that the door to the wedding feast is locked to them. The servant who failed to put his talent to work ends up in the outer darkness. And here tonight in this parable, the goats go away into eternal punishment. Oh my. Well, all three of these parables, the ones we've been dealing with now for these three Sundays, come from very late in Matthew's account. It's right before things really get set into motion for his arrest and eventual execution. They are stories told to the disciples as part of a larger teaching on the looming crisis. Not simply the crisis of his arrest, but beyond that toward the political hailstorm that the Roman Empire will bring down upon Jerusalem, eventually crushing the city and its temple. But not even just that, beyond that, to the culmination of all of time and all of history, words that we'll actually be considering next Sunday when we move into Advent. For now, I think it's fair to see these three crisis parables and the material that precedes them as being a kind of instruction to the disciples and to the young church that they would soon be leading. 
Instruction about preparedness, readiness, a willingness to actually trust the gift with which they'd been entrusted, and a readiness to live and act now as if the kingdom had already fully come to be, as if the kingdom of God was in their midst, which he'd been telling them all along, as if Christ was already reigning as king, which is the thing that the liturgical calendar invites us to mark and remember on this last Sunday before Advent begins. This feast day of the reign of Christ, or Christ the King, Christ is already reigning as King, even if sometimes it doesn't look like it. Broken and sorrowful as this world may be, live now under his kingship, in sure and certain hope of the redemption of all creation. Well, I think that these parables from these last three Sundays are pointing that way, but with some edge. He nears the end of his little book, The Meaning of Life, a very short introduction. It's a very good little book. The literary theorist Terry Eagleton turns his eye to this parable of the sheep and the goats. The meaning of life, Eagleton writes, the meaning of life is not a solution to a problem, but a matter of living in a certain way. It's not metaphysical, but ethical. It's not something separate from life, but what makes life worth living, which is to say a certain quality, depth, abundance, and intensity of life. That's what gives it its meaning. And so looking at this parable... Eagleton notes that it begins with a rather grand picture of the Son of Man returning in his glory, surrounded by angels. Eagleton calls this an off-the-peg cosmic image. Off-the-peg meaning like off-the-rack. A sort of a stock picture of what we would imagine holy grandeur to be. The Son of Man descending in glory, surrounded by angels. And then the parable continues. And Eagleton says, Salvation turns out to be an embarrassingly prosaic affair. A matter of feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, visiting the imprisoned. It has no religious glamour or aura whatsoever. Anybody can do it. The key to the universe turns out to be not some shattering revelation, but something which a lot of decent people do anyway with scarcely a thought. Eternity lies not in a grain of sand, but in a glass of water. The cosmos revolves on comforting the sick. When you act in this way, you are sharing in the love which built the stars. To live in this way is not just to have life, but to have it in abundance. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, thirsty and gave you something to drink? When was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? 
When was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer, When you stopped at the street corner and bought me that sandwich, when you brought in that bundle of wool socks to put in the basket at your church, when you talked to me in the bus shelter the day that I was sitting there looking so lonely and sad, when you made that pot of chicken noodle soup to bring me the day when I got home from the hospital, when you didn't back away from me when my life went off the rails and I was really spiraling, when you looked at the extra space at your dining room table and asked me to come and join your family for Christmas dinner, when you remembered to call me on the anniversary of my spouse's death, when you saw the deep sadness in my eyes and wouldn't let me get away with saying, oh, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm fine. That's the force of the parable, right? When you act in this way, you are sharing in the love which built the stars. And isn't that a lovely statement from Eagleton? I think he's profoundly right in seeing this parable as speaking to life's very meaning. You know, Isaiah might have received his vision of the heights of heaven, and Mary may have been greeted by her angel once, but for the most part, living the kingdom has no religious glamour or aura whatsoever. Anybody can do it. Anybody. Anybody can. The thing is, do we? And here we meet the goats in the parable. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Oh, if only we'd known that helping other people was so important to you. The parable, though, it's not intended to, to get us to look smugly at our own good deeds. Satisfy that we've done our best to be good girl or boy scouts. Good little sheep. It's not the intention of the parable. Rather, it's intended to invite a deep, a deepening and deeper consideration of the goatiness of our own lives, of my own self. Because I know all too well those days when I just don't have the energy to talk to that lonely, sad-looking person in the bus shack, or when I'm just a little too busy to bother to remember to set the extra place at the dinner table or to take the time to maybe check to see if somebody wants to come or to take the time to call the friend who I know is in a bad way. I'd do that tomorrow. I'm tired today. When I read this parable, I'm not entirely sure how well I'd fare on that day when the Son of Man comes in his glory but I need to learn to receive the parable not as a source of sort of crushing guilt and shame because I'm not doing enough good deeds or as a call to start racking up the do-gooder brownie points that I hope might put me over there with the sheep all the while looking down my nose at those who I've determined to be rather irresponsible goats. No, no. No, I need to hear this parable as a deep wake-up call and an invitation. An invitation to me, no less. To again cite Terry Eagleton, 
To live in this way is not just to have life, but to have it in abundance. And as for the judgment of those goats that might be tempting to look down my nose at, or those goats that I'm afraid I might be numbered with, uh, judging them, that's not my business, not your business, not our jurisdiction. That's up to the king. Our job is to, to do what we can to be counted compassionately among the sheep. And to, by doing those things, to actually participate in that love which made the whole of the universe. The king can deal with the sheep and the goats. The king whose upside-down kingdom left him, as we just sang, with scars on his hands. I'm deeply struck by something a colleague once wrote. Something I actually cite in one of the meditations that I wrote several years ago for our little book of Advent devotions. Christians, he wrote, dare to say that there is only one lamb and the goats got him. Yet in dying exhalations that one lamb forgave all the goats. The one lamb is the king with scars on his hands. And we do now stand under his reign, now and ever call is to hear this parable and then to trust that. And in those little things, with cups of cold water, with bundles of warm socks, with pots of soup, with caring visits or phone calls or emails, with attentive hearts, find ways to live now under his gracious reign. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.